section two of the bibliology module of this theology series we're starting here at Valley Baptist and uh, this section two is the inerrancy of scripture section one just to for those who weren't here last week and to refresh everyone's memory is how do we know the Bible is true in the main focus of that we discussed the inspiration that the, that all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God breathed. God is the author. We know it's true because God is the author and God is true. He cannot lie. Uh, it, he is He is true. So, and then we went through a number of different scriptural um, defenses of that. So that's that's how. So we know the Bible is true because it is inspired by God. God can't lie. So now. Um, as, you, as your outline says here at the very beginning, logically following from the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture is the understanding that Scripture is um, inerrant, inerrant, or without error. Um, theologians uh, commonly use this characteristic, call this characteristic of Scripture inerrancy. And I have the idea, one theologian put it this way, The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Uh, That's one way of putting it. Certainly it doesn't lie. It's all true. There's there's very simply, as I put it, it's without error. Everything it says is true. Uh, As we get to the bottom of the lesson, we'll point out some, some issues related to that. But it doesn't state anything contrary to fact. It, it, it might almost seem that way sometimes, but when it's thought over carefully, it does not. Um, okay, letter A in your outline under that is liberal theologians view the Bible as human, <clears throat> human literature with writers as prone to error as those of other books. So your blanks are human literature and as prone to error as those of other books. They don't see the Bible as inerrant. Um, Then letter B, some who, who might consider themselves to be conservative, and put quotes around that, whatever that means, but who are more serious about Scripture, who do believe it is from God, they hold the Bible as unique with God as its author, but restrict restrict its inerrancy to, own, uh, to uh, I think I have a typo, to only to teaching, I think we should just say inerrancy only to, scratch out the first two, uh, only to teaching on moral issues. Okay, that, that would allow for errors in matters for like in science, history, uh, geography, it's like, well, the Bible's not inerrant in those things, but in, when it comes to moral issues, it is inerrant. There's a problem with that, though. As we've discussed before in a lot of the, the studies we've gone through, if you say that this part of Scripture is true, but this isn't, how do you determine? 
what is true and what is it. It becomes very complicated, very difficult, <clears throat> and basically it makes, <clears throat> it makes man to be the determiner of truth and not God. So again, some hold that view, that it's partly inerrant, the things of moral issues and so forth. However, and then I have however dot 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 letter C, the traditional Orthodox Christianity has maintained a firm belief in what is called verbal inspiration, which means every word of the original autographs, okay, that's a different word, autographs of Scripture is inspired and without error. I'm sorry, I'm not ready with what the literal word of autograph means, but the point is, when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, whoever he, whether he wrote it or had someone write it for him, there, there was an original autograph, the document where pen went to papyrus or whatever it was. That was the autograph. That was the original document. And in those documents, when Moses wrote Genesis, so, so on and so forth, those original documents are inerrant, no errors. Okay, now from that point on, and we will get into this, this Lord willing, in one of the next couple of lessons, about what the manuscripts are. And a manuscript is just a manually scripted copy of the autographs. Okay, so we don't have any of the autographs. But they were written, and then people copied them. Okay, so we'll get into some of the details about that later, but when I say that, when you write that in your blank there, autographs, that's what we're talking about, the, the actual original document that was written. Okay, so turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 30. The idea that verbal inspiration, that every word is is without error and is inspired. Proverbs chapter 30. This is a uh, proverb of Agur, the son of Jacob. Um, let's see here. Well, let's just read this for, let's get into um, the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukul, surely I am more stupid than any man. Isn't that nice to admit? <laughs> and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Then he goes on, he kind of contemplating here. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Or who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? Then verse 5, interesting, after all that, every word of God is pure. That's the way I think both the King James and the New King James say that. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. So every word of God is pure. That word pure... um, is it basically comes the idea of to smelt or refine or test. 
Okay, and one of those sub-meanings is to test and to prove true. That's every word of God is tested to be to, and proven to be true. We can count on it. And if you haven't experienced that in your life, hopefully you have had your, your um, own experience of God showing himself to be true. But every word, that, that's the idea of the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Okay, and as we look at this a little bit more, we see the Bible seems to claim inerrancy for itself. For itself. Um, the following claims would be empty, is your blank. You could also say, um, well, let's just say empty. There was another word that the, uh, some of the authors had in mind, but I use the term empty. If the words of Scripture were not considered inerrant. And we've got four examples here that I just want us to spend some time to look at. And again, a, um, an unbeliever could scoff at just about any of these arguments that we're about to make because they are based on Scripture itself. And if they say, well, we don't believe the Scripture, that doesn't satisfy us, well, okay, but, but we, we should, as believers, see what the Scripture does say about itself, and that should increase our faith and encourage us. And hopefully if we share this with others, and if they are willing to at least hear Scripture, then God can use that in people's lives. So, letter A, Jesus' claim for the abiding character of the letters which spell the words of Scripture. He, he goes even deeper than the words and gets to the letters, okay? So Matthew chapter 5, I'm sorry, let me get there. Hopefully you're there already since I've been talking. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. Um, start, let's start at verse 17. I'm going to read 17 to 19. I have 518 in your notes there. But, okay, Jesus speaking here. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Then he goes on, whoever breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law to all is fulfilled. And again, in, in Ryrie's book here, which many of you maybe have and uh, have as a resource to look at, he says the jot is the Hebrew letter yod, and, which is the smallest one in the Hebrew alphabet. So that's one is pretty small. And then the tittle is a minor stroke that distinguishes certain Hebrew letters from others. So in other words, the Lord was saying that every letter or every word is important. And the Old Testament would be fulfilled exactly as it's written. It'll all be fulfilled. Because inspired, if it was not fully inerrant, that argument, it would be empty at best. Okay, it would be, it'd actually be a lie. But we know that God can't lie and Jesus can't lie. So he's saying not a jot or a tittle will pass from the law to all is fulfilled. 
And then look at letter B. Yeah. Up in letter, oh. Letters, letters, which spell the words of scripture. Okay, then letter B. Uh, Jesus points out that the Old Testament teaches of um, the resurrection based on the present tense of the verb I am. Based on the present tense of the word I am. So turn if you're in Matthew, so just go over to chapter 22. Um, Okay, so here in this passage, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees. In verse 23, you see, uh, of Matthew 22, verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, so they didn't believe in resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses, if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife. And he goes on to say, you know, they seven brothers, and she married each one, and then they died and married and died and married. So then in... um, in verse 28, they say, Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Verse 31, but concerning... Good morning. Have a seat, sir. We're in the midst of Sunday school here, so we're going off of this this sheet of paper here. My name's Ken. Jim. Jim, nice to meet you. Okay, and Jim, we're about halfway down the page. Add letter B under, yeah, halfway, look at halfway down the page, you see a B. <laughs> Jesus points out that the Old Testament teaches of the resurrection based on the present tense of the verb I am. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 22. And um, so Matthew 22, and then verse 30 again, they, they said, um, Jesus is answering the, the Sadducees for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels of God in heaven. And then verse 31, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to, what was spoken to you by God saying, verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So what Jesus is quoting here goes back to Exodus chapter 3. You can turn to that if you want. Um, Yeah, why don't you go ahead and turn there. Exodus chapter 3. And this is, as I've looked at this, and I, I hope... You all get the same impression that I did. 
as you go through this. Uh, I mean, just any time you study scripture, if you really dig into it, you, you go to cross-references all over the place, and you see how the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, weaves together. Um, so I, you see this here as well, where Jesus makes use of the Old Testament to make an argument. Um, and again, here uh, in verse 1 of Exodus chap- chapter 3, he says, now Moses was tending his flock, uh, the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And uh, okay, then verse two. This is the the, the bush, the the fire, fire, the burning bush. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Verse 6, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he is afraid to look upon God. Interesting on this, for those of you who are really astute looking at scripture, you'll notice in that verse, verse 6, the M is italicized, which means it's not literally in the text. And the whole argument here is the present tense of the verb, I am, instead of saying I was, he says I am. But in the New Testament, as argued by Jesus himself, he, the I am, the am is not italicized. So again, the, the, the italicized words in, in Scripture, especially in your King James, New King James, mean it's not literally in the text, but it, it's what it means. We're just filling in the English, making the English makes more sense for you. So here I just was encouraged by that because I, I looked at that and I said, hmm, the am is italicized. Is it really present tense verb? Well, Jesus confirmed, confirmed that it was. So re- really the original languages. That's what was intended, and Jesus used that seemingly minor point to argue for the resurrection. Yeah. So, so again, but but so that that we're just making the point that if you say part of Scripture is inspired and part of it isn't, and whatever, these kind of arguments just don't. Or if you say it, it has errors in some areas and not others, these arguments would carry no weight. Let's look at another one. Letter C. Jesus' focuses, again, on a single word in Psalm 82.6, to vindicate himself from the charge of blasphemy. That's your blank there as a charge. He's being charged with blasphemy. Then, once again, he goes to the Old Testament and uses a single word to argue, to vindicate himself. And, and we're not going to get into all the theology of the actual arguments. We're just trying to make the point here, the value Jesus put on the scriptures in every little detail to make it an argument. So turn, if you would, to John chapter 10, Gospel of John chapter 10, and verse, uh, let's start at verse 33. Again, uh, Jesus is having a discussion with others, um, and in the, the Jews, verse 33, the Jews answer him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
And Jesus, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Verse 35, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, that's the point here, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, speaking of himself, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So, again, here he's going, and, and you don't need to turn there if you don't, um, but where is it? Okay, so he is quoting from Psalm 82, 6. I guess I have that in your notes. No, yeah, I do. Yeah, I said single word, 82, 20, 82, 6 says, I said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. So again, he's, he's, he's looking at the very words from the Old Testament, making arguments to vindicate himself against the Jews. Um, and again, he, he enforces his point by saying there in verse 35, and the scripture cannot be broken. He holds the scripture in such high regard. Can't be broken, every word of it's true, and he's using, he's looking at it and using it to defend his point. Okay, so those are a few of Jesus, and we're going to talk about a couple more yet to come. But let's look at letter D where Paul, the Apostle Paul, he makes the case based on the singular seed versus plural seeds. So he makes the case based on the singular word instead of the plural word. So let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, Based on, based on. Okay, so Galatians chapter 3. All right, let's start at verse uh, 13 here. Okay, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is, is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is not only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. So again, here he is. Now what he's doing here, and this, this it took, took a while. This was a detour for me because it is hard to find the exact quote. Uh, the first reference I looked at, or the first resource I looked at, said this was quoting out of Genesis twenty two eighteen, which is what I have in your notes. Um, some others pointed out to other verses. None of them seem to match up exactly to me. I don't want to get into the details of this because I know Paul is quoting scripture. He, the, the point I want to make is, again, the detail. He's, going, he's not just looking at the word, 
but the plurality or singularity of the word. He's making an argument just based on that detail. Again, if scripture was not verbally inspired and inerrant in every point, that argument, it would just have no weight whatsoever. As I put in your blank earlier, it would be empty. But it does. At least the writers of the New Testament put that importance, that critical nature of of Scripture being inerrant, they leaned on that to make their arguments. Okay, so if they are, if we believe the Scripture is true, we need to to put um, a lot of value in their own arguments. All right, any questions on what we've covered so far? No? Okay, I guess totally with it. All right, good. Roman numeral number two. The claim of inerrance, wait a minute, I'm sorry, no. No, number two, you got one A, B, C, and D, and then number two under that. Jesus' entire teaching ministry would be empty if it were not for the what? <laughs> if it were not for the full, okay, meaning and the, the, the theological term for this is plenary, just for your information, the full verbal inspiration of Scripture. In other words, Every, every detail is true. Every word is true. But the whole... Let's look at Psalm 119, 160. Psalm 119, 160. I have that in the parentheses at the brackets at the end. But we'll start with that one. Your different versions may state this slightly different. I honestly... In this particular case, love the way the New King James phrases it. Um, okay, where are we? Okay, I just threw myself off. 119, 160. Okay, the New King James says, The entirety of your word is truth. I think the King James says your, yeah, here we go. Thy word is true from the beginning. So, and, and every, then it goes on, uh, every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Um, the, the idea is from the beginning of time, when, when Genesis was written, when the very, when we very first, scripture was first started to come to be, which again, it was a process. There was a progressive process of some scripture being written, then more added to it and so forth. But it's saying it's true from the beginning, the whole of it. And the way the way the New King James says, the entirety of your word is truth. I think others say the sum of it. The idea is all of it. Every word is true, but all of it is true as well. And let's see what Jesus had to say about that. Very familiar passage, Matthew chapter 4. Or should be... I think this was one of the first verses I ever memorized as a new believer. Um, there was, I think there were like four or five verses that was very important. As I was discipled, as people brought me under their wing to teach me, this was a very important verse for me to memorize. And if you haven't memorized it, I recommend you do. <laughs> um, okay, um, this is again, Jesus was being tempted by the devil, okay? We'll start in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, again, we're, we're talking every word, but it, it kind of encompasses all of God's word. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy. Uh, I don't have that there. If you want to put a note in your notes that he's quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. That's where he gets that from. And Deuteronomy 8.3 said, So he humbled you, talking, the prophet talking to, uh, or Moses talking to the, the people, saying, God, he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So again, every word lives by every word. He doesn't say... Every man, uh, that man shall live by, every, uh, by bread alone, but by, uh, by uh, um, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, or Paul's epistle to Romans, or, or, or Luke's gospel. No, he said every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And again, this whole thing we talked about inspired last week, God breathed, and this is kind of another way of saying that. All of Scripture came from the mouth of God. Okay, now the next example. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. So after Christ's resurrection, men were walking and talking about the events of that day. And that's the context of what we have in Luke 24. Okay, and I'm going to... So again, at this point, these two men are walking and Jesus joins with them and they're talking to him, explaining what, what is going on. And they say, continuing their, their explanation, they say, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, again, he was walking with them, but they didn't know it was Jesus. Okay. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe what? In all that the prophets have spoken. And then he says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In verse 27, And beginning at Moses, which would include the Pentateuch, the first five books, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So two points here. He, verse 25, he says, Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You should believe all of it, not just this part that you like and this part that's hard. You should believe all of it. And then again, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, things concerning himself. So just to repeat one more time, every word is true and all of it is true. The whole of it is true. 
All right, any comments or questions there? Because we got through the meat of it in terms of what the scripture says. And, and, and there's much more. Many of you might have thought of other passages that, and if you have any actually burning in you, you say, oh, what about this one? I think we would have time for that. But I think we've covered, again, we could have added many more such examples where it's like if it, if it weren't true, if every word weren't inspired by God and inerrant because God's perfect and doesn't lie, then all these arguments and even Jesus' teachings would, it would be, um, I don't really, you know, like a straw man thing, I guess. It would, would have no, house of cards, I guess, is what I'm looking for. It would have no real foundation. But if it is all true, if it is all perfect, then these kind of arguments carry weight and make sense. And uh, you can be a skeptic. There are skeptics. And like I said, most all those arguments we've just covered, to an unbeliever who doesn't believe in the Bible in the first place, that might not be very helpful to them. Or it might not... Um, but, but I guess what we're trying to do here is just theologically, this is what the Bible teaches us about itself. This is, and that's what we're studying here. Let's look at number two, Roman numeral two next, because this is kind of the difficult things or things we need to consider or realize. The claim of inerrancy does not deny that the scripture does make accurate use of ordinary figures of speech, figures of speech. Um, since we have time, let, let's go to this. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7. This is one that honestly has bothered me a little bit. So I've, I've, I've done a, a fair amount of memory work in Revelation, and I've come across this. It's like, mm, that's not scientific. Why does he say that? Revelation chapter 7, verse... One. Revelation 7, 1. It, um, after these things, this is the Apostle John speaking, under, you know, guided by the Holy Spirit. He's seeing amazing things. He says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So it's like, we know the earth doesn't have corners. That would be a flat earth kind of thing. Uh, if it's a flat earth, then you got four corners. We know the earth doesn't have four corners. But from the viewpoint of John looking at this angel or these angels, he doesn't, he's not looking, he's not up in a satellite looking at the whole globe. He's on the earth. Um, it's similar to us saying, you know, the sun rises, the sun sets. It doesn't really, but if you look on even weather.com, you'll see sunrise, sunset, right? That's the way it looks to us. That's a common figure of speech. So you could get bound up in that and say, well, that's not scientifically true. But again, we as human beings, even the secular word, uses figures of speech like that just because it's a natural way to speak to somebody, to understand what you're experiencing. And that's kind of, that's right. 
And that's, I think, what is meant by that. For one thing, that's what he's viewing. And the other thing is, when we think of wind direction, yeah, you got north, northwest, northwest, northeast, north, but, but it's, you think, north, south, east, and west. And that's, that's the idea they're trying to get across. So the point is, when we claim inerrancy, we're not saying that everything written in Scripture is scientifically informed. I guess. Anything that speaks directly of science would be true, but there are things that are expressed that if you really want to be picky about it, again, you would be denying the fact, though, that we speak in this way. That's just the way human beings speak and explain things to one another. So we understand that that's going to happen. There are going to be figures of speech. Um, Okay, letter A under that. Similar consideration applies to numbers used in measuring and counting. Okay, the limits of truthfulness would depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker or writer. And also that which would be expected by the original hearers or readers. Okay, what, what you know, are they expecting down to the fifth decimal point precision, or they just want a round number, an approximate number. Um, I don't have it copied, but one, one theologian in his, uh, his systematic theology pointed that out. He made, made for example, 8,000. If, if the actual number was 7,750, uh, 7, and you said 8,000, it's like, well, that's approximately unless you really need that precision, 8,000 is true. It's maybe not totally accurate, but it's not false. It's an approximate of the reality. Similar things with different measurements and so forth. So we need to understand that as well. Scripture is not always going to have the precise number, but it will be in the range expected. Okay. Again, that's where it's... The, the, the limits of truthfulness would depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker or expected by the listener. Does that make sense? So you'll see examples there where numbers maybe don't exactly match up. And, okay, let's see. We're going to just finish out these last couple points. Um, Letter uh, number three, Roman numeral three, the claim of inerrancy also does not deny that there are problems, oh, I hate to say that, in the text we presently have. When I mentioned before about the autographs, we talk about the autographs, the very first manuscripts. Actually, the very first manuscripts, well, how should I say this? There are no manuscripts that we presently have, from what I read and understand, that are free, totally free from errors. Okay? Because when you, make, when you copy something, and we'll get into this in more detail, I think in another one of the next two lessons, mistakes are going to be there. Um, but when we go back to the autographs, they are perfect. So the, what we have now, we went through the manuscript stra- stage, through the translation stage, and we have in our, we still believe we have God's word in our hands. But there are problems. There could be, I mean, there could be errors, so to speak, but it's but God still superintended over the whole thing in an amazing way. So look, look at letter A, note of it. 
However, problems are different from errors. And I think maybe I just... Problems are different from errors. Man's knowledge of these problems is limited and has, in some cases, been proven to be wrong. And unfortunately, I didn't quite have enough time to dig into details of all those things. Uh, Charles Ryrie, we have in the library, which I have checked out presently, his, his bigger book, his theology book. And in that, he goes through at least 10 different Old Testament problems and probably almost 10 different New Testament problems. But he has wonderful answers to, to all of them. Now, but he admits that there might still be problems that we can't quite resolve, but we are limited. And again, some of these seem like we couldn't resolve them, but we have since been able to resolve them. So we shouldn't get hung up over that, okay? Um, And I'm sorry to kind of leave it that way, and that, well, give me some examples. Uh, Well, if we get into example, we could just do one, and then we could do two. By problems, for example, there is one example, and I'm not going to, it's in the Old Testament, where somewhere it's recorded that there were 24,000 that were killed. And somewhere else, somebody it records 23,000 that were killed. It's, that's still fairly close. But then there was pointed out that 23,000 were killed in one place, and then the 24,000 included a slightly broader area. You kind of have to search that out, but it's there. So at first you could say, ha, see, one says this, one says that. They can't both be right. Well, it's like, wait a minute, let's look at the context, what's really being said. So that's just one example of the kinds of things where people would say, the skeptic would say, there are problems. That proves that scripture's not true. But that's not really um, the case. But we we realize that. What we have, there, there might be some difficulties that, it's worth studying. It's worth digging into. But God's word can be, can be trusted. This point is that the hardest thing, we believe the Bible is true. We, we, within this congregation, by and large, I hope, do believe the Bible is true. We realize our human limitations in understanding some of these difficulties and so forth. But the, the harder thing is to take what we know to be true and obeying it, following it. That's the real challenge. Um, and so we can, again... And that's what the world wants to avoid. They don't want to be accountable to any of that, so they say it's not true. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, the easy way out, so to speak. All right, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that your word is true. It's inerrant and, and fully from the beginning to the end. We thank you. Uh, we praise you for having preserved your word through the centuries to the point where we have English versions that we can trust and French people have French they can trust and Chinese, Chinese they can trust and so forth. You have preserved it miraculously that we can learn of you. We pray you'd help us to do so. We do pray now that you bless the uh, service to come. Help us uh, be again with Alan as he brings your word and help us all, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.